Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the Leadership Development Podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. This week, I'm so excited to be once again joined by Brian Espinal on the show. And Brian is a keynote speaker, university teacher in Ontario, Canada, blogger, and author of Codebreaker and new book, Blockbreaker. Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure's all mine. Happy Saturday. Yes, happy Saturday. And Brian, I want to kick off the show talking about your new book. I had an opportunity to read it, and it was absolutely marvelous. I will give you an opportunity just to give us a quick glimpse into your new book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, following in the the Breaker series, the idea with with Breaker came to be disrupting the status quo, so to speak. So the metaphor of of breaking codes, it's deeper than than the coding movement that's happening right now. It's more about an assessment, evaluation, overhaul, and shifting education. So Blockbreaker, being the second in the series, offers a glimpse of how I used tools like Minecraft to engage students in my classroom. And I really focus on the success of students with autism in particular. I had a previous student who had a, who was autistic, or sorry, a student with autism. I'm careful with my wording there now. Yep. And how he used Minecraft as a voice, really. It became a portfolio for him to demonstrate learning. I want to kick off how we can incorporate technology more, especially as we are moving into jobs that are more technology-based. How can our leaders really push off using the same concepts in the book? You know, it's it's interesting that we're heading into a time, first time in human history, right? More devices connected to the internet than than people. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to encourage everybody, leaders, young people, to be mindful of the data that's being collected. Uh, with regards to your question, I, I've noticed that technology, uh, using technology has allowed me to create time in my classroom. And by doing that colleagues have have noticed as well and and we're able to get together and conference more often right and it starts with a dollar piece too but the more we use technology we found the more money we were saving on our our printing costs right because less and less of us were printing things and so saving on ink and saving on toner and saving on paper all of those pieces actually allowed us to purchase you know more technology which was more more sustainable so the more we used it the more time it created for us with regards to efficiency and our lesson planning uh, and the more money it actually saved us with the technology piece with students i've heard a lot lately about how fearful people are of using technology just because they think students are going to get off task or they're going to find things that are not appropriate to school. What are your concepts with technology in the classroom and what teachers can do to help students? I think the element of fear is is always going to be there with anything we introduce. You know, I, I didn't have internet when I was in elementary school, but that didn't mean we didn't have ways to find inappropriate content <laughs> and or magazines that we were sharing out back at recess time. And we didn't mm-hmm. ban recess time. Okay. So the idea of using technology and being fearful of what kids are going to get into, well, you know, Kids are going to explore whatever they're passionate about or whatever might be provided to them in that space. And we have to recognize these these teachable moments. We can't we can no longer ban. We can no longer control, if you will. I don't know if those are the right words, Um, but we have to embrace and we have to use these examples and these experiences as teachable moments and, and ultimately let go of the fear. I think the fear stems a lot from liability and, you know, who's who's at risk if if kids are presented with inappropriate content. And like I said, if parents are on board and administrators are on board and teachers are all on board, then it's, it's those teachable moments are incredibly powerful. 
So why is it so important for our leaders out there to embrace technology and coding specifically? Well, it, in technology in general, brings an element of student engagement. And we had a saying at my former school that's, you know, program determines behavior. If kids are engaged, then your your behavioral problems will, will go down, your test scores will go up, and everybody wins. It's like happy, happy wife, happy life, happy kids, happy school, happy parents. <laughs> Brian, I just want to quickly um, touch on something that I saw on social media. Um, I know that you received criticism lately in regards to your message. I just want to know how you kind of work through that and how do you keep pursuing um, your passion, your vision in regards to technology and leadership? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, somebody threw a quote at me that said, in the social media age, we all have a following, whether big or small. And that means hundreds, if not thousands of people will have a perception of, of who they think you are that will be completely uh, inaccurate, so to speak. I'm going to keep pushing forward because it's inspiring to me, it's inspiring to my family. And, you know, we've got young people in our family who are growing up in this digital age. So pushing, pushing is important. It allows us to make change and, and change is not always a bad thing, right? We just, we don't fear change. We fear a lack of support when change is, is the expectation. So pushing boundaries, keeping, keeping the conversation going and, you know, re reflecting on those pieces, if they do come to be, if they do come to light because it's somebody else's perception and perspective. And I think it's important for our own learning to be mindful of other people's point of views. I wanted to touch on what you just talked about with working with our students and preparing them for things they don't even know there are going to be available. I know when we were growing up, we had no idea that we're going to have drone pilots and people that are coding for a living. So how do we prepare our students for jobs that we don't even know it will exist? Yeah, that's a great question. I think we would be naive to think that we could, you know, prepare kids for anything in in any kind of a future, the way the world is changing so exponentially quickly. I think it's important that we establish problem solvers and independent thinkers, you know, the the skills that are adaptable so that students are prepared for anything that might come at them. And I think it's more important that we prepare students for anything rather than, you know, a stream or an idea of what we think lies in their future. And so how do we do that as far as in the classroom where we are so traditionally based with worksheets and textbooks? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the more open-ended the tasks we can provide, the better. Uh, and sometimes we talk a lot about inquiry-based learning. I think in a true inquiry-based uh, task, we may not know the solution or the answer. We're going down this path to try and develop solutions to problems in our current world. And so by providing the, the more open-ended tasks, I think there's more opportunity for all learners to feel a level of success, right? Mm -hmm. You've got the multiple entry points. Some faculties call it wide walls, just meaning there's multiple ways to approach a problem because it is so open-ended and not like a, like a worksheet where it's sort of a bit more of that one size fits all. What was one of the initiatives that you implemented on your campus that you're extremely proud of? Uh, it took a team effort, of course, but one of the biggest pieces I think that, that we as a group were proud of was the ability to have a, a grade-less school from K to 8, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Not saying we didn't have a mark book or anything like that, but just the simple idea of stop putting, stopping to put numbers on kids' work 
I feel over the course of about five years developed more problem solvers. Uh, there was less fear, I think. Whether kids are motivated by grades or not, there's an element of, of fear attached to the idea of your work being quantified. So the less we did that, the more we found our students were willing to take a risk. There's too much risk in not getting the grade. They knew they were always being graded, but being able to conference with our older students and, and coming up with that number together before report card time seemed to me to make all the difference. So I was pretty proud of that because Five years after uh, we had started, we had reports from our secondary school that we fed into that our students were, were the leaders of the high school, where uh, some of their peers might shut down if technology is not working. Our students reported, you know, not just fixing the technology, but creating new technology to try and keep the lessons and the ideas moving forward. So being gradeless was a piece of that puzzle, but creating those, those student leaders um, as the bigger goal is something we were all very proud of. And I want to go back to the, the grade list piece. Did you find that there was less motivation with the students or more motivation? I found in the very first year it was a nightmare, complete gong show. If you think about, now we stream our students here in Ontario going into grade 9, and so marks in grade 8 do carry a little bit of weight. The second piece is our students in grade 8 have been in elementary school for 10 years from JK to 8 and had grades the entire time. So that first year was was problematic uh, for a variety of reasons. Of course, the parental piece was a new thing, right, for parents to be like, what do you mean I'm only going to see a number twice a year uh, on both of those report cards? Mm -hmm. But by about year three, after the first sort of cohort had gone through and we had younger siblings, they had now, you know maybe five years in an elementary school with grades and then we're on their third year without. And so we found that dug into it, the better the programming became and the richer and I think higher quality tasks we were giving our students came to be because of it. Brian, I want to talk about kind of the data-driven mindset. What is the relationship between looking at student data and then also um, having a gradeless system? Well, we, we have standardized testing still here in Ontario in grades 3, 6, 9, and 10. And so data is a big part of what we do. Uh, but the data tells us a lot of things. You know, um, we, we look at really, really big data. And so it's a, it's a wonderful benchmark, and it offers opportunities and, and, and glimpses into things like bias of questions or, you know, generalization stuff. But then at the student level, everything we do is so scaffolded and personalized it just didn't make sense to put kids on the same sort of standard. So data, yes, is important to look at, say, as a school-wide focus or a district-wide focus, but we didn't really let it drive any of our instruction at all. And we found, actually, the less we talked about the data, the better our data got. And we, we attribute that to, again, program rapport and less anxiety and less fear. And so with teachers that have that fear of maybe their own skills and technology or um, allowing students to have mo more ownership in the classroom, how did you help them through that and for them to gain knowledge in technology? We started with a, a big motto. It's okay to be where you are. It's not okay to stay there. Uh, we got into this business to be lifelong learners. And we also decided as a staff, it was incredibly important for us to be incredibly collaborative through this process because we'd never done it before. And so, you know, I might have been the, the expert with technology, but my closest colleague had 25 years classroom experience that I could never, ever, ever relate to so early uh, in my career. So everybody was able to bring a piece 
to the bigger picture, whether you were a tech expert, whether you were the, the classroom management expert or the math teacher or the literacy teacher, everybody was a piece of the moving puzzle, which really provided, I think, a sense of comfort in an era of discomfort. And for campuses that are maybe not one-to-one or are lacking resources, for our administrators out there, what are the first steps to really try and get a campus to be able to use more technology? I'll be honest, everybody is pushing technology for technology's sake, and how do we fund that? The biggest shift for us, I'm going back to the example I mentioned earlier, was simply the photocopier. At the beginning of one of our years, this is about six years ago now, we had a $12,000 printing budget. And we said, if we can just simply digitize one thing that we do, maybe we have a really great go-to black line master we use on a regular basis in a science classroom. If we could just simply digitize one piece, how much money could we save? And by the end of year three, we had our printing budget down to $3,000. So we'd saved, you know, 9,000 in that last year, like 5,000 the year prior. And we had almost $15,000 we could reinvest into say an iPad. And, and that has a product life of, you know, three years where a worksheet has product life of about 60 minutes. So we found just having simple conversations around, I don't want to change anything about your program. Let's just begin to digitize it. And that means you're still going to have your black line masters, graphic organizers, whatever it is you use. We're just going to let kids scribble on them using their finger on a tablet. So what's kind of the baseline for each classroom as far as student interaction with technology? Well, when we started on our journey at the beginning, of course, we, I believe we had maybe two iPad carts for a student body of about 500 kids. So those were being signed out just like the former computer lab. And ultimately, when you have a a cart in your classroom in a 40 or 60 minute period, it is challenging to do any kind of depth with, with big tasks. And as well, when students are sharing devices, it makes it complicated to, you know, save that work. But as we began to increase those devices, we found that not only were classrooms collaborating better, but teachers were also collaborating better. The more and more we we had devices. And by the end, through all of our work, I think we are pretty well almost two devices per student, which was incredibly important because we had a big conversation that we keep preaching student choice and student voice, but the second we dictate what kind of device they have to use, do we remove uh, an element of student choice? If we're one-to-one iPads in the classroom, have we removed some choice in, in student work? That's a good point. So you have an incredible pulse on the future of education as you travel around the world. What do you think is the largest barrier to the success of our students? I strongly believe we are in dire needs of an evaluation overhaul. And for the sake of conversation, say assessment and evaluation are almost two different things. And we'll leave leave the assessment piece to descriptive feedback, whether it's written, whether it's oral. The evaluation side of things when it comes to quantifying student work, and I know that grades uh, are still important in many aspects of education for a variety of reasons. But I do believe that's something that we we really need to think about. We really need to move away from the idea of standardization and, and assigning a number based on student work. Because 
as a former elementary phys ed and math teacher, I never graded my phys ed students by how many volleyball serves they could get over the net because I would have a D average of a class. <laughs> so why am I quantifying and evaluating math through this binary approach of right or wrong, particularly when we now are looking at STEM, STEAM, makerspace, coding, Minecraft, all of those spaces and pieces provide tasks that we can't evaluate as binary, as right or wrong. We can't score what a student has built in Minecraft on a scale. It just doesn't make sense. The idea of creativity being so important in education, well, creativity is not something anybody should be able to evaluate and dictate because it's such a personal experience, right? Mm -hmm. uh, who am I to say a piece of art is good or not, so to speak? I mean, I have my qualifiers as an art teacher, but really, if you look at the artistic industry, it's all open to interpretation. So in regards to technology and leadership, if you could give one challenge to our aspiring leaders in regards to technology, what would that be? My one challenge is something a very close friend of mine, administrator of mine, gave to himself. And I think it was incredibly important, and I'll put it out there. He wanted to see how long he could do his job as a principal of his school without A, opening his office, so he left the door locked in the morning, and B, using his desktop computer. He made it a goal of his to see how much work he could do as an administrator from his phone. And the reason for that was that's the world in which our kids live. In regards to your new book, when is that coming out and how can our listeners get it? Oh, I'm so excited. The cover's done. The final edits are done. We're just working on the, the last minute layout now. We're on target for super early March. Uh, I hope it's late February, but if it's out by that spring break, we have March break up here mid-March. Mid uh, I will be incredibly excited. It'll be Barnes & Noble, Amazon, uh, Indigo Chapters. And Brian, how can our listeners connect with you on social media? Oh, please connect with me on Twitter at Mr. Aspinall. I'm on Instagram at Mr. Uh, Aspinall. I'm all over Facebook. You just need a quick search or my, my website, MrAspinall.com. Please continue to check out the Aspire podcast. And if you've gotten any value from the show at all, please subscribe and leave a rating or review wherever you're listening. Don't forget to use the Aspire lead hashtag as you continue the conversation on Twitter. Ryan, thank you so much for being on the program again. Pleasure's all mine.